Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves Waterless clouds, swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desire. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Here ends the New Testament reading. Well, please do take a seat. And it'd be great if you could take up a Bible again and look back to that little letter of Jude at the back end of the New Testament portion of the Bible. And as we try to get our heads around it uh, this afternoon, we're going to need all the help uh, that we can get. So I'm going to pray. Father God, We thank you that your word is truth, and as that hymn we've just sung reminds us, we cannot have a cavalier attitude to your truth as it has eternal consequences. So help us to hear your word and know your truth this afternoon. But more than that, give us the will to pray it through and act upon it too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if your school days were anything like mine, 
But I still remember uh, being in the playground at break time, messing around, playing football or something like that, when all of a sudden we'd hear that distinctive chant rise up. Fight, 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 fight. And as soon as the cry went up, we would all just drop whatever we were doing and we would run to gather around and join in the chorus. This was a semi-regular occurrence at my school in Glasgow. And I have to admit that as a young lad, I found it rather exciting as it broke up just the sheer monotony of school life. Until one day, I found myself on the inside of the circle rather than the outside. And as my opponent and I danced around one another, getting ready to engage, I found myself asking, is this going to be worth it? (laughs) Is this really worth fighting for? Now, I know that's um, terribly intriguing, but I'm going to have to tell you later what happened. But I'm sure, you know, looking at physique like this, I mean, it's not hard to imagine exactly what... No, no, it is hard to imagine what went down. Uh, But that's the kind of question we ask of any conflict, isn't it? Whether we're watching from a distance as our boys go off to war, or it's closer to home as we're personally faced with a possible fight over some consumer right, or the disciplining of our children even... We weigh it up, don't we? And we ask, is this worth tying a fight over? Well, last week we began this mini-series in the letter of Jude. And we've called it Something Worth Fighting For. Because this letter is a call to fight. Jude, the baby brother of Jesus, kicks off his letter by saying, verse 3, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now that word there, contend, basically means to fight. They used it back in those days about gladiators. So Judas saying, although I'd rather be penning you a a note celebrating God's amazing grace and love to us in Jesus... I felt I had to just abandon that letter and write to you, urging you to fight like a gladiator for that faith. Like your very lives depended on it. Or at the very least, because other people's spiritual lives depend on it. Of those early Christians who Jude wrote to, the reason for fighting is made very clear in the next verse. As certain people had crept into the church and were teaching others that for that Jesus' forgiveness meant that they could live, just live as they pleased, carrying on sinning. As if Jesus came only to be our Savior and not our Lord. And so they rejected the authority of God's Word in the Bible and they pursued and encouraged an ungodly, unchristlike lifestyle. Which makes you wonder, doesn't it, if the true faith of Jesus is worth fighting for, then why is Jude having to write to tell these Christians to fight against those who teach a false faith? I mean, shouldn't it be obvious? Well, it's not always so easy to spot a false teacher. The most convincing falsehoods are subtle, aren't they? Which is why we don't always spot the danger. So Jude gives us here three specific areas of life to put under the microscope to test the validity of all who teach, whether it's up front like I'm doing here in church this afternoon, or downstairs in the kids' groups 
or in a small group, or one-to-one over a coffee. And excitingly, they all begin with the letter P. It's a preacher's dream. Passion, power, and prestige. It's a preacher's dream if you can kind of shoehorn it that way, but I I don't think I've done that. Let's firstly um, uh, start with the desire for sexual passion in verses 5 to 7. As Jude lines us up Old Testament examples of God's people being sexually immoral, like when angels rebel against the boundaries God has set and come to our world to have sex with women in Genesis chapter 6, which is what verse 6 alludes to. Or when violent men try to have sex with angels in Genesis chapter 19, which is what verse 7 is all about. Now that may seem pretty bonkers to you. I mean, it may confirm your suspicion about the Bible. How can I put it? About how it's weird, basically. But we have to expect some surprises when we open up a book that deals not only with the physical realm, which we can see and hear and touch and experience ourselves, but a spiritual realm, which we can't necessarily see, but we all have a sneaking suspicion is there nonetheless. The Bible opens our eyes to that spiritual realm, and we mustn't let the strangeness of this revelation distract us from Jude's main point for mentioning these incidents at the end of verse 7. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see, Jude is saying that we should not be uncertain about what God's attitude is to those who reject his word and rebel against his safe and loving boundaries for sex, either heterosexual or homosexual or any kind of sexual. God has made his judgments perfectly clear. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by what insurance companies would call an act of God. And some of Jude's Jewish contemporaries wrote about the site still smoldering with volcanic activity in their day. They regarded it as a standing visual demonstration of God's judgment on all those who turned aside from his loving ways. And so Jude says, do you see what happens to folk who reject God's word and pursue their own sexual pleasure as of first importance? They don't get away with it they will have to face up to the consequences of their actions. So why do you think it would be any different for verse 8? These people who defile the flesh, i.e., they use their God-given bodies in ways God didn't intend them to. Why do you think it would be any different for them? I presume Jude deals with sex first because he knows that it is the most likely thing to pull us away from Jesus. Sex is a powerful force in our culture, in our lives, isn't it? In all my time working for the church, whether it's in the last year being a minister here at St. Joseph's, or when I was involved in doing student and youth work for years before, I have seen more lives wrecked by sex than pretty much anything else. And it breaks your heart to see it. So when it comes to those who teach the Bible, consider their attitude to sex, says Jude. An unwillingness to control our passion in the sexual arena exposes us for what we really are and where we're heading. And of course, 
it influences what we teach, inevitably. A number of years ago, a leading bishop in the church published a book which divorced God from morality. He concluded, therefore, that we could, we could make up the rules ourselves as regards sex. Now, he's a leader in the church. So why do he teach that? Well, later it came out that it was because of how he personally wanted to live. And many others have followed suit since, as they teach things which justify and excuse, excuse their passion for sex. And if you think that the dangers are just out there, and I'm just going after folk who are out there, with the dodgy bishops and the vicars in other churches, let me say that I'm convinced that Jude wants us to apply this to ourselves too. Remember that these tests he's giving us here are for all who teach, whether we're leading a small group or reading a Bible story to our kids or whatever it is, many of us do have opportunities to teach the Bible. And our experiences and our behavior will always affect what we teach. So be wary of your passions, people. They can so easily draw you astray. And when that happens, I guarantee that unless you repent, you will lead others astray too. You see, false teachers don't just wake up one morning and they go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set out to twist God's word and lead other people away from Jesus. No. They are people like you and me who are careless in following Jesus and who prioritize their own desires over God's commands. And over the years then, develop a theology to justify their actions. Well, Jude goes on to highlight just how outrageous that kind of behavior is in the second points he makes. As false teachers also have a desire for power. As what they're actually doing here is setting themselves up in the very place of God. Have a look back, will you, at verse 8. As these folks not only defile the flesh, but they also reject authority. God's authority, that is. God's supreme right. Supreme authority to define right and wrong. Do you see, no matter how nice or reasonable false teachers might come across, the big issue with them is that they have a problem with authority. As deep down, they believe their feelings and desires are the final authority. Beware of people like that, says Jude. Even archangels, the servants closest to God, they wouldn't act like that. Look at how Jude continues in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, we don't have time, unfortunately, to get bogged down into all the intriguing details of that. But we don't need to. The point is really clear. Not even the chief of God's angels would dare to make moral judgments of their own, even about the devil rather than humbly submit to what God says in his word, to God's judgments alone. Not so the false teachers in verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. You see, if you, feel that if you think your dreams or feelings or ideas are the final authority, if you think of yourself so highly as that, well, then you can wax lyrically about practically anything, can't you? You can even speak about things that you don't actually understand. 
like when the Da Vinci Code came out a number of years back. I remember a number of people coming up to me saying, do you know that there's evidence that the Jesus of the Bible isn't the Jesus that really existed? Even though the source of that evidence was a book you will now find in the fiction section of your local library. And before you think I'm mocking others for their folly, let me confess just how easy it is to be tempted to, to read an article or a book so uncritically that we're taken in or shaken by that new truth or life-changing discovery the author claims to have found. You see, false teachers can creep in, in print as well. Even when it sounds spiritual, even when it sounds Christian, and it makes us feel good, be discerning. Jude says they could be speaking about things they really don't understand. And what understanding they do have, he says, it's nothing more than animal instincts. They live by the law of the jungle. See how verse 10 ends. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. You see, the only language they really understand is the language of desire. When you cease to be ruled by God's word, you become ruled by your desires whether that's a desire for sex or money or success or pleasure or power, whatever. And that ultimately dehumanizes us. It turns us into unthinking animals who live just by our instincts, as if we had no self-control, unable to control our impulses. Let me pull into a lay-by here for a second and ask, what's the main application for us? I think it's this that we must use the Bible to judge the teachers and the teaching that we hear or read. Jude is written, remember, to the whole church, not just a few Christian leaders. So if you're a Christian, then you're responsible for judging the teaching and the lifestyle of the teachers that you hear by comparing them with the ultimate measure of the Bible. I mean, that's why we have... Well, at this church, we teach through passages of the Bible like this. That otherwise, we might be tempted to, to, to skip because they seem really tricky. That's why we have Bibles in the, in the backs of the chairs. And we have bits on the backs of the service sheets that you, for you to take notes. That's why we encourage you to get the Bible open and follow as we do these sermons. And to think critically about what, whether the, the preacher is actually saying what the Bible says and whether they're applying it fairly. And that's also why I want to encourage you to ask questions if there's things that you don't understand, um, or you think that we've got things a little bit off-beam, or we've gone a bit too far on things. Now, please do that after the service. I mean, these things take ages to prepare, and it would be an absolute nightmare just stopping every now and again to ask questions. And, and I know, though, that might actually sound a bit daunting to do in practice. But we have to have that kind of hunger to learn and that kind of accountability of leadership if we're not going to be suckers for false teaching. Okay, let me pull out that lay-by and accelerate into the home straight with the third test of these false teachers, which is that they have a desire for prestige. They simply look out for themselves. Look at verse 11. Jude goes on to say, Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error 
and perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude now reminds his readers of three Old Testament characters. Cain, the first murderer in human history, who killed his brother Abel because he couldn't cope with not being the top dog. Balaam, a brilliant prophet with everything before him, who was so greedy for prominence for himself that he disobeyed the Lord God. And then Korah, who we read of in number 16, who became insolent and rose up against Moses, God's appointed leader. What's the link between all three of those folks? They wanted a position of prestige. They wanted profit for themselves. They don't want to play second fiddle to anyone. They wanted to be up there with everybody seeing them, making a name for themselves. Jude says, beware of people like that. And beware because Cain, Balaam, and Korah's actions all led to death for God's people. That's because false teachers are simply not interested in caring for God's flock. Do you see that in verse 12? These men are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding only themselves. A shepherd who doesn't feed his sheep isn't a shepherd at all. He's just a man with a dog. And he causes the sheep great harm. I don't know lots about looking after sheep, but I do know that when they're not fed, they become weak and sickly and unable to withstand attack. And eventually, they will die. Leaders who are only out for themselves, first and foremost, don't care for and feed God's people, his flock, his word. So if you're only interested in feathering your own nest, you won't faithfully teach the Bible because it's too much like hard work and let's face it, it never makes you popular. People don't like being told to turn around their lives, to change. People don't like being told how to live their lives. But this is what the Bible often does for us. And if we're just in it for ourselves, then we won't teach that because we'll be too concerned about what other people think of us. Beware of people who always make you feel good, who flatter you, who only ever say nice things to you. I mean, if you come to church week in and week out and find that there is nothing here that we do that challenges you or makes you feel a bit uncomfortable, then I would suspect that something has gone seriously wrong there. Now, obviously, it's not that we should be seeking to go out and just try and offend people. But the Bible tackles every area of human life. So when we open it up, it will, time from, from time to time, be unsettling to encounter what God has to say about certain things. But it's a good thing to be shaken up by God's word every now and again. It stops us from getting too comfortable or too complacent in our Christian walk. It stops us from falling asleep in the faith. And it shows us that we're not airbrushing or editing what God has to say. So don't be fooled by people who always make you feel good. They are a con. That's Jude's assessment in verse 12. They're waterless clouds and fruitless trees. In other words, they're useless. In fact, they're worse than useless. They're dangerous. As verse 13 goes on to tell us that they're like an uncontrollable heavy sea that throws up a load of filth on a nice clean beach. And they're like a wandering star, i.e. a planet 
We still navigate by the stars, don't we? But if you confuse a fixed star with a moving planet, it could lead to your death. The point is really simple. What do you do with fruitless trees on an allotment? You get rid of them. What do you do with a polluted beach? You go somewhere else, somewhere nicer. What do you do with a wandering star? You don't follow it. So what should you do with a false teacher? Exactly the same. All of the above. So the application, therefore, is really simple too. If you move church and... Oh, sorry, if you leave the area and you have to move church sometime in the future, avoid one that has false teachers in it. And if we drift and fall into false teaching as well, you've got to leave. And if you know folks who are involved in a church currently where the teaching is not from the Bible, you've got to encourage them to get out. We mustn't tolerate a church where the Bible is not submitted to as God's word and the supreme authority of belief and behavior. Don't be lazy and just settle for a church that is near you when it's teaching falsely. Many people have been ruined that way by a misguided loyalty to their nearest local church or to the denomination they were brought up in. Another application arises from the trees of verse 12. Fruitless trees shouldn't have fertilizer thrown on them, which is why we shouldn't partner or financially support churches or organizations who do not submit to God's word and faithfully teach the Bible. We shouldn't be wasting precious resources fertilizing the very false teaching that we should be fighting against. Now, most of the application in this little letter is in the final section that we're going to look at in two weeks' time. So do come back then as, uh, as, we'll be, as we'll learn how to fight. But for this week, we ask, is the faith of Jesus Christ worth fighting for? Is it worth it fighting for? As I asked that question in the school playground all those years ago, the answer was most definitely No. As Stevie Smith had called me a rude name once again, and I had just lost my rag, and embarrassed both of us by starting what was probably one of the lamest and most ridiculous fights you will ever see in your life. I'm so glad you weren't there to see it. But here, the answer is most definitely yes. Getting involved in any kind of fight is regrettable. But fighting for the faith of the Lord Jesus is necessary, says Jude. Because fighting isn't the worst possible case scenario. The worst possible scenario is people being deceived and led off into hell. As the bottom line, recurring like a drumbeat through this passage, is that this is where these false teachers are heading. And they're taking those who follow them. Verse 4, verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, all speak of their condemnation, punishment, destruction, woe, gloom of utter darkness. And if we're not getting the picture, finally in verses 14 and 15, Jude makes it clear that when Jesus comes back with all his angels in judgment, these false teachers will be judged because they spoke against him, not for him. They changed the wonderful grace of God into a license for immorality. Teaching that God has saved us, not so that we can be incredibly changed to be more like him, but so that we can just go on rebelling and do whatever we like. 
Don't believe it, says Jude. Don't be fooled. As sadly, their way leads only to destruction, not salvation, for others as well as themselves. Let's pray. Father God, these are heavy, sobering words. And I must admit that like Jude wished that he was writing a different letter, I have to say, part of me wishes I was preaching a different sermon. But the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us is so precious, so amazing, so life-transforming that it's worth fighting for. The stakes are simply too high. So help us to guard our own lives from error and train us to not only spot false teaching, but to lovingly challenge and correct it and to snatch others and save them from it. That many would be saved by your truth and stay true to you, whether they teach it or they hear it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.